we'll turn to our scripture passage for today, which is Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 9-1. And if you've been following along with us, we've been going through the gospel of Mark. Um, and the thing is, experts, they're really good at hitting at targets, but the mark of a genius, they find a different target. That's what Jesus is. He aims at a different target. Everyone else, they, they aim at success, wealth, uh, power, prestige, whatever. And these are all targets that we all try to become experts on. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to flip the script here. There's a different target we ought to aim at, a different mark to, to aim at with our lives. And nothing gets more clear about that target than our passage today. And so with this in mind, for those of you who are able, can you please stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give him our full attention today. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, he, he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man, a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us. As the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a word of prayer? Father God, as we approach your throne of grace through the preaching of your words today, we pray that we would hear the voice of our King of what it means to be part of your kingdom. That as we aim to our lives to look a certain way, maybe we're missing the mark all along. Maybe the target has been in the shape of a cross for us to actually follow rather than what the world does. And so would your spirit graciously teach us what it actually means to live life according to your eyes. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Charles III, he is the wears a crown in England. You have someone like Elvis Presley who changed rock and roll with one hip thrust at a time. You have LeBron James who redefined how basketball is played. Then you have something like King Taco, the best Mexican food on the West Coast period. I'm going to take you there one day if we all have a, a field trip. What do all these things have in common? What do all these things have in common? They all share their name, King. Kings in their different domains. And when the king is in the building, the atmosphere changes. The atmosphere changes. See, all of us, every single one of us, we strive to be kings in our different domains, whether it be in parenting or work and relationships. Things, uh, it, the thing is that the higher up we go to be kings in our little mini kingdoms, the greater the fall is. And when we take a look down once in a while, that's what causes anxiety. That's what causes uh, us to burn out. Because after all, there's no excuses. You've got to keep this up in your life. Make your kingdom secure. What Mark makes explicitly clear in today's passage is that only Jesus is king. His domain is not musical, it's not political, it's not entertainment. He is king over the cosmos. And the thing is, unless you give your whole allegiance to him, you really can't be at peace. You really can't be. He's got to be king over everything in your life. Here's why. We're going to look at three things here. There's a ruler, what it means that he's our ruler. Second, what it means that he, ha he has reign in our lives. And last of all, what it means that he is our redeemer. Ruler. Let's look at the first part. So I've been here as you're a pastor for like, what, nine months? So for the most part, I'm assuming you kind of know who I am, right? Do you know who I am as just as a person? All right, well, I, my name is Amos, by the way. And the thing is, you probably know a lot of my idiosyncrasies and my personality and what I'm just kind of like. So if I were to just randomly turn to you one day and just ask you, do you know who I am? You'd be so confused by that question. Because such a question, you only ask such things when you're trying to flex your power to, to perhaps get out of a speeding ticket. Do you know who I am, officer? Or maybe get the most uh, uh, exclusive dinner spots reser reservations. Do you know who I am? And yet when Jesus asks this question of who do you say I am, who do the crowd say I am, it's not a power play here. The responses that the people give, or at least the disciples think, is that they give uh, uh, people figures like John the Baptist, Elijah, and perhaps one of the prophets. And the thing about all these responses are, the thing that they all have in common is they all have to do with the prophetic office. Prophetic office. So essentially, people understood Jesus to be a revolutionary teacher unlike any of the prophets before. So they had high esteem for Jesus. He's going to change things, but not entirely accurate about who Jesus actually is. So he's got to ask his inner circles of the disciple. And he asks his disciples, but who do you say I am? And it's an emphatic question here. 
who do you know me to be? It's personal. And Peter mummers out and says, you are the Christ. You are Christ. He finally gets one of the answers right. But does Peter know what that means? Because the Christ literally means anointed one. And it's a translation of the term Messiah, a term not only that references priestly service, but also a kingly one, a king taking his office. So Christ is ruler over everything. That's what this title signifies. Jesus' question is not, uh, not about, do you know things about me? But do you know me as ruler and king over your life? Do you know me as ruler and king over your life? I'm going to nerd out here just for a little bit. Just stick with me here. But ruler. So I think about the actual ruler. Puns intended here. And I think about the fact that back in January, no, I've had this ruler for like 10 years, actually. It's a really old ruler. And did you know that in January 1 of 2023, which is this year, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they changed the standard international foot to 0.3408 meters at the stroke of midnight. They changed they changed how much this is, or I mean, how the, the measurement of this. My ruler is now essentially useless. And I just thought, it made me question so many things. Like, who comes up with standards like this and measurements? I was going to be dramatic and break this, but I still want to use this, so I'm just going to put this down. We love standards. We love our measurements to see where we are. We have standardized testings to see how smart we are with MCATs and LSATs. And yet, yeah, those are important things. But does it mean that we'll be better doctors or lawyers? But hey, we have our standards. And then we think about from the inception, uh, coming out of the womb, we have uh, percent, uh, percentiles of where our baby's at, their head size, how long they are. And, you know, even though we don't try not to think much of it, but we think, oh, they got to be a little bit ahead of the competition to, to make my soul a little bit comfortable. Measurements, standards. Who determines all these things? I don't know what it was like for you, but I hated being compared growing up. Who comes up with our standards? Who comes up with these measurements? And the thing is, a foot is only a foot in relation to a meter. So the way that we measure our life has to be in relation to another life. We're such status-seeking creatures. Whether we admit it or not, we love our standards. We love our measurements. And Jesus snaps the many rulers. This is where I was going to snap my ruler. But he snaps all the rulers that measure our life. And he says, no, 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 no. What is your relationship to me? Am I the ruler in your life? Because that's a whole different, there's a whole different way I measure what truly matters in your life. There's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is the Christ. So naturally, Peter has his own definitions of what, what a king is supposed to look like or what a ruler should look like. And most likely, Peter is thinking Jesus is going to take over house majority. 
He's going to create his super army that no one else can rival. And Peter and his buddies, they'll end up with nice pension plans of camels and acres of vineyards to wine and dine at. They'll have, they'll have their nice cushiony jobs because Jesus will be king. And yet Jesus began to teach them, the Son of Man, which is another title for a king, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Goodbye to your plans, Peter. And Peter has this knee-jerk reaction to what Jesus just said about himself. And so the text says that Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. This word for rebuke, this is not like um, steering someone in the correct direction, just a little nudge. Rebuke is a strong word always used in that context about sin. Jesus or Peter is calling Jesus to repent. Jesus, you need to repent. That's what Peter is thinking. Kings aren't supposed to be rejected like this. They're not supposed to suffer. They're not supposed to die. This is crazy talk. The audacity of Peter to say, Jesus, you need to repent. You need to repent. See, in return to what Peter is thinking as, you know, as Peter is uh, calling Jesus to repent, Jesus says he gives one of the most harshest rebukes recorded in the history of mankind. Look at verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is the harshest rebuke anyone has ever received. Even Judas Iscariot, who literally betrays Jesus, he doesn't get something like that. But Peter, you are acting like Satan. You are acting like Satan. In our church, we have a process that's called church discipline. And what this means is that um, for some of us, when we fall into sin and we're just thinking uh, uh, the things of this world and, and we don't really want to repent, we have this thing called church discipline. And it's a whole process here. It's not just at once uh, uh, when you don't repent, um, we, we just kind of let things go. But like when, you, when your heart is so hardened, we go through this whole process where there's admonition, then there's suspension from the sacraments, then suspension for office, and then when things get really bad, there's excommunication. And a lot of us, when we think about church discipline, we probably think, that is so harsh, that's incredibly mean. Why would you go through those kind of extreme measures? Like, that's not gracious. I thought, I thought you talk about grace all the time. How is that being grace, gracious? Well, the point about church discipline is this. On the next slide in our BCO, it says, the point of church discipline is for the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the last point, what I want to emphasize, is reclaiming the hardened heart to restore someone. That's what it's there for. You might think it's extreme measures, but it's only, it's a whole process that we go through to redeem someone who is stuck in their way 
I want you to think about it this. I remember being at a party where um, it was like one of those fancy parties where everyone's dressed up. I think it was like a kid's birthday party. And, um, you know, everyone's hanging out. The door or doors are being uh, uh, passed around and everyone's having a good time. And then one of the little kids who's like, I don't know, maybe like two years old, barely two years old, is wobbling about as he's walking. Um, in the backyard, there's this great gigantic pool and the little two-year-old gets enamored with the water and starts kind of bobbling his way up to the water like he's going to jump in. And I'm pretty sure that kid doesn't know how to swim. And so as the kid is walking to the pool, I see a dad, just a man from nowhere, says, no, and he jumps into the pool in his fancy suit and splashes in the water trying to save his kid. And the kid just kind of laughs and walks away. But that, that is the heart of church discipline right there. Like we're making sure that someone doesn't just go headlong into their sin and thinking it's okay, I'm just going to be forgiven anyway, so I'm just going to keep on with this pattern of my lifestyle. That's, that, that's, not, that's not it for us. We have extreme measures because there is, uh, we see the, the gravity of sin in our lives sometimes. And it forces us to go head in. Jesus gives this rebuke to reclaim Peter. Because Peter, you're setting your things on the things of man. You're looking at a different ruler. I am ruler over your life. Church discipline is about making us recognize who truly reigns. Who truly reigns. Which is the second point here. Who reigns in our lives? See, many of us, we can get caught up uh, behind the fact that Peter gets called Satan. But what truly stands out to me about Peter is how in the world he could still follow Jesus after receiving this kind of remark, right? If you and I, if any normal person, they receive the word Satan in their lives, we'd be like, I'm canceling you, Jesus. I'm done with you. Forget you. I'm doing it my way. But Peter still follows Jesus. Why does he do that? Because he's a true disciple. Disciple literally means learner. Discipleship is not about how much you know, but about constantly learning. And learning requires vulnerability. That may be perhaps you could be wrong about how you're doing life or that you could be wrong about your assumptions of God. I want to introduce you to this woman. There's this lady named Rose, and she's 87 years old. And at that old age, she decided to enter into college. And this, you know, naturally all the college kids, they're all, you know, 19-year-olds and they're, you know, they're all thinking like, what are you doing here? And she said, you know what? I've always wanted to go to school and, and get my education and now's the good, uh, best time for me. And so um, she was this sweet grandma and she's like um, giving her words of wisdom, taking all these classes together. And the thing is, after she graduated, she actually graduated, uh, she passed away two weeks after and thousands of the students came to her funeral. That's how much of an impact this lady had on her campus. And one of the things that stood out to me is how she was sharing a speech with all the collegians, and she simply said this, we do not stop playing because we are old. We grow old 
because we stopped playing. There's a huge difference between growing older and growing up. If you're 19, year old, 19 years old and you lie in bed for one full year and you don't do anything productive, then you turn 20 years old. Anybody can grow older. That doesn't take talent or ability. The idea is to grow up by always finding opportunity in change. It's such a beautiful description of what discipleship is supposed to look like. A playfulness to constantly learn what it means to be a child of God. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. A lot of people, they look at this verse and um, we think it's about suppression of our desires of what we really want to do. Or it's this low-key guilt trip that if Jesus carried his cross, so why can't you? Why can't you do the same thing? That's how we think about this verse most of the time. But I can't help but wonder, instead of getting caught up with this whole idea of suffering, that we miss the purpose Look at verse 12, verse 2 up here. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. Who is the joy set before Jesus? You and I, his people. Jesus bore his cross because he knew that the mission and the purpose is to redeem us. There's this sense here, you really can't have joy without bearing some kind of cross in your life. You really can't have a true sense of joy without bearing some kind of cross in your life. Following Jesus means we've all created, we've all been created with a specific purpose and a mission for us to fulfill in service to God. Today is not about uh, going through all the details of what is your purpose, but to let you know that you, all of us have one. All of us have a purpose to fulfill. The only way this becomes clear is when Jesus becomes the ultimate ruler and he breaks all your metrics of measuring your life with, and you follow him. Guys, being comfortable is not the same thing as being joyful. We tend to confuse the two. Many people are comfortable in America, or at least that's the goal. Many people are comfortable, yet we have this highest rates of depression, highest rates of fentanyl addiction, we have the most gyms, and yet we're dissatisfied with what our bodies look like. We have the highest capita of storage units, and yet for some reason, we still don't have enough. Being comfortable, not the same thing as being joyful. Bearing our cross requires a purpose that we fulfill in service to God. I met up with a college student who was in their last year of trying to, um, last year of school, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives, you know, naturally so. And he asked me how, 
he was sharing with me how the newer generation, I don't know, I think it's like Gen Z now, Gen Zers, how they don't, how their goal in life is to become dinks. D-I-N-K. Do you know what that is? Double income, no kids. Dinks. That's every Gen Zers goal. I had thought, oh, well, that's, uh, uh, why, why is that? Why is that your goal in life? And he said, you know, the kids are too expensive and the thought of bringing a child into this world that's messed up only will burden us more. We're more open to adoption because at least the child already exists and it's not our fault for bringing them into the world. But at the end of the day, to be a dink is the best life of all. I found this interesting. Dinks. That's the good life. On the night, uh, on the day of my dad's birthday, I uh, gave him a phone call and um, wishing him happy birthday. And I was also kind of sharing with him how grateful I am for him. Because a little bit of context is that, you know, I realized that when my dad was in his 40s, he completely switched careers. By training, he was an engineer. That's all he studied for. And I was like, why would you switch uh, careers in, in the middle of that, you know? And he did such a risky thing, and he did all this sacrificing. And I was thinking about myself and how uh, hard of difficult of a child I was back then and uh, causing all these problems in his life. And I said, you know, Dad, uh, thank you. Happy birthday. I- I'm so sorry. I was such a burden to you so many times. And, you know, he, he just, you know, stops and pauses. And he says, what are you talking about, Amos? You, your brother, your sister, you were like the greatest joy in my life. Like it was the most fun when I had you guys. You, you made life more enjoyable. Yeah, it was hard, but like it's not nothing compared to the joys that it brought with it. And I was like, I started like tearing up in the back, but I was like hiding it so my dad wouldn't hear it. And then he talked about insurance stuff and that kind of killed the mood. Um, <laughs> but the, the point of this is not, you need to have kids in order to be fulfilled. The, the, the point is, there's a purpose in your life that God wants you to fulfill. Bearing your cross uncovers what your purpose and service to God is. And unless you, you go after that wholeheartedly, you, you can't have joy is a thing. Cross-bearing is equated with joy. That's what Jesus is getting at. And Jesus is redeeming our sense of joy in life which brings us to the last point here. Because everyone's got to suffer. Question is, what are you willing to suffer for? Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Guys, I'm going to sound super cheesy here, okay? But when I think about this verse, I think about the rapper Eminem, his song, Lose Yourself, right? He, he's talking about in this song, for those of you guys who don't know, know, don't know, you're not missing out on much, but he says like, you got to lose yourself. So when you have these big moments in your life, forget all your insecurities, forget all the troubles that you have, just go for your dreams. And so you hear all of these athletes listening to this song about the, about to play their big game. Sometimes I would listen to it before preaching, but that doesn't help. So I stopped listening to it. You know, lose yourself, lose yourself. What does Jesus mean when he says this? When Jesus says, lose yourself, he means 
give up all your demands of what you think your life ought to look like. Give up all your demands of what you think life ought to look like. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? What good is it to have everything but not the ultimate thing? The writer Ernest Becker, he put it this way, at the root of human beings are those who have to deal with, deny and defy their mortality And what's going on in the heart of every human being and creature is that we desire to stand out, to be the one in creation. Our tragic destiny is that we desperately try to justify ourselves as primary value. And underneath all our living, hoping, and our hurting, there throbs the ache of cosmic specialness cosmic specialness. And yet, is this not the nagging feeling we have with aging? Maximizing the glory years of whatever youthfulness that's left to gain stuff, experiences, career, wealth, because there's an aching cosmic specialness before it's too late. It's a longing for our many kingdoms to come rather than God's. In Japan, they have this aging crisis where I believe like the average uh, age is like 70 years old. And so you'll read all these stories of people dying in their homes alone. And no one really knows about it until the stench gets so bad that people have to go in to uh, check it out. And you'll also hear stories that people, as they age, they don't want to be a nuisance and bothersome to the people of their society. And so what they'll do is they'll wander into the woods by themselves just to die. It's a sad thing to think about. On the night of my, uh, on my mom's birthday, the theme is birthdays today, on my mom's birthday, we went to go actually celebrate with her. And I told you she has Parkinson's, right? Her hands are shaking. It's a a disease that doesn't really get any better. You can only manage it. And as we're cutting the cake and all that, I can notice that her her shakes are a little bit more this time. And, um, you know, we're all chatting, uh, celebrating together. And she asked me, you know, I I, I asked her, you know, how have you been? And she says, you know, I've been good. Uh, and I was talking about, oh, how's the, how's the Parkinson's coming? Or how, what have you been doing about it? And she says, you know, I've been uh, seeing some therapy for it and all that. And um, she says, but I've also been looking at places like Denmark or Amsterdam or something, some of these places, and they have clinics. I said, oh, well, what kind of clinics are these? And she said, they're, they're clinics where they help you. Um, they assist in people who want to end their life early. And she said, you know, I've been looking into this because... Uh, you know, I was like, why? You know, I was kind of like thrown back by that. And she says, I've been looking into this because, you know, this, this isn't going to get any better. And um, I don't want you to see me when I completely forget about you guys. And you guys just have to care for me the whole time. Like, I don't want you to see me like that. So I feel like it'd be less bothersome if I just go with this option. You know, and you're a pastor, Amos. Is this an okay thing to do? I like froze up, you know, that's like my mom, you know, I don't know what to really say at that point. 
And like, I'm thinking, God, give me a verse, give me a verse, give me a verse. And he gave me Isaiah 46. And I was, I was telling her mom, like, that's so crazy. I don't even care if you can't remember me. I don't care if I have to take care of you every single day. I don't care what kind of sacrifices I have to make. Like, even God says in Isaiah 46, 4, he says, even in your old, even in your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will care and will save. That's who your God is, mom. So I was just joking anyways. Just keep celebrating. I'm like, what is this? The cosmic specialness that we're all looking for really just boils down to this one thing, to be chosen Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords who enters the world not to profit, but to redeem. Not to gain, but to lose at the cost of his own righteous life for you. That at our lowest point, yours and I, our lowest point, here is a God that's willing to say, I'm not ashamed of you. Because why? You are the joy set before him that he is willing to endure the shame of the cross for you and I. He is the king who loses all status games. He loses all status games of wealth, prestige, even the love of his own father. All so that he can redeem you. Jesus saying that uh, that some Jesus ends by saying that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, which is about the people around him that were actually going to witness Christ's death, his resurrection, and ascension into glory. That's what he's talking about there. But you and I, dear saints of New Life Fremont, witness and know the love of God in Christ which means there is a whole new standard of how you should measure your life. It is no longer measured by inches or digits, but measured in the steadfast love of a king for you. Friends, die well, because you'll see what it means to live. Pray with me.